following program is pre-recorded. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dean Stephen Smith, who is the Dean of Humanities, the Temple Family Chair in English Literature, and a professor of English at Hillsdale. Together with them, for the next many weeks, we are tackling the works of Shakespeare, the history plays, as we promised you last week. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. The Hillsdale Dialogues are found most easily collected and in order over at iTunes by simply Googling Hillsdale Dialogues. And we've touched on Shakespeare for, before with Professor Smith, and we like him because he's nice to lawyers. He's the editor and uh, one of the co-editors of the works of Thomas More. Dr. Arndt's not so nice to lawyers, but he knows a lot about Shakespeare, so we're letting him in on this. Dr. Arndt, of course, president of Hillsdale College. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. It's great to have you on this fine December day. And Professor Smith, welcome back. You've been on leave. Yes, I'm uh, talking to you from the secret recesses of the sabbaticade mm. right now. Well, the- <laughs> and working on, a, working on a new book, but I'm very happy to be here to talk about Shakespeare. We found the Sabbatic Cave, though, uh, with the assistance of Dr. Arn and broke in. And I apologize for that break in. But sometimes uh, sometimes we have to bring Shakespeare to the public, uh, to the public side. Dr. Arn, thank you for allowing your lawyer friendly faculty member to share these days with us. Yeah, I, I used to think he could never be a dean because he's nice to lawyers. But <laughs> Thomas More is a pretty good one to like, though, you got to admit. OK, let's start. We're going into Shakespeare and we're going fast. And we're going to ask you, Stephen Smith, at the beginning. Why bother? Why start with Shakespeare? Why finish with Shakespeare? Why worry about the history plays? Well, I mean, first of all, I think most people who have had a brush with him know that when you encounter him, you know, you encounter uh, an incredible artist whose plays, you know, really appeal strongly to our judgment, our reason, our imagination, uh, to our mind and our heart, to our freedom and desire. And they really have a, a teaching goal as well uh, on any number of subjects. So the first thing to do is to get excited about, about Shakespeare um, and the encounter with him and, and to really see it as a chance to take a master class. I get these ads all the time on social media. Do you want a master class on this, a master class on that? I'm always thinking, what about Shakespeare? You know, take the golden chance to learn from the bard about the human soul, human nature, human liberty, political life, virtue, uh, and more. Yeah, when they, when they use that language, what do you think they're advertising? And when you say take a master class from Shakespeare, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean that he is the master of these subjects, the master teacher. Um, few have studied the soul and human nature and politics like Shakespeare. Few have studied liberty and virtue and vice, for that matter, like Shakespeare. And so it's, a, it's an investment that I urge everyone to make, both on the page and on the stage, you know, read him and see him, and spend a golden hour or two um, in the school of Shakespeare, and you'll be repaid richly. Now, Dr. Arm, we will talk next week, as we have talked about in the past, your family's visit to Chicago and seeing King John. But when was the first time you encountered Shakespeare? Hmm. Well, in high school, uh, but seriously, in graduate school with Professor Jaffa, you know, he was, I had an English professor, we did some Shakespeare, and he was pretty good, but Professor Jaffa is a master, he has a deep understanding and a love for it, so yeah, long time ago. 
How about you, Dean Smith? A great high school teacher. Uh, Mr. Smith was his name. And we had a great class on Macbeth. And I just loved that play, and I still do. It's still way at the top of my list among the great works of Shakespeare. Love to teach it, love to think about it, love to see it performed. And it all started with that. Well, you know, my, my first encounter really was with Professor David Allen White on the radio years ago when he used to do an hour here and an hour there on Shakespeare. But it was never sequential. It was never thematic. And that's what we're going to do here. We're going to focus on the history plays. But before we do, what do you really need, Professor Smith, to get ready, uh, especially if you're going to read ahead? And we're going to do uh, King John next week and, and Richard II the week thereafter. We'll talk about the history plays generally in a moment. But what do you need to actually benefit from this beside a long commute? <laughs> well, I think you need what we always need to learn um, and, to, and to undertake a serious education. We need that habit of, of attention and focus. Um, we need a kind of willingness to see and to listen to a teacher like this. And actually, we need a kind of courage, I think, to wonder and, and to learn at all. And that's um, an indispensable first requirement. You know, we had a great speaker on campus recently, a guy named Kevin Majors, who runs Optimal Work. And he spent a lot of time studying attention and focus. And I think really, especially in this age where we're so distracted and so saturated in media, we need to recover the great virtues of, of reading and thinking again. And it starts with, with that habit of attention and that ability you know, when, to focus. When you sent me your outline, I had to smile because my motto for my children all those child-raising years was focus and execute. Because I think yeah. it is so important to focus. Uh, Dr. Arn, I have one quick pre uh, preliminary question for you. Our friend, your friend and mine, Andrew Roberts, came through town two weeks ago, and he was talking about all these new papers that have been released on George III that the Queen so graciously allowed him access to. Are any new papers ever released on Shakespeare that we have to worry about, the updated edition of the Shakespeare folios or something like that? Or all are we blessed by knowing the end of the story with Shakespeare? Well, first of all, there, there aren't very many Shakespeare play papers, I don't think, are there, Steve? And, and the reason is, is a long time ago, and he was not a statesman. And so, you know, what there is, you know, let you, I mean, there's doubts about big things in his life, right? Um, I mean, there's a, Steve told me years ago that there's a, strain of thought that believes that Shakespeare spent some time up in Lancashire with my wife's family. Uh, and, you know, that's where she comes from, I guess. Uh, but, but that's a subject of doubt. Am I right, Steve? Yeah, I mean, he, he's a very mysterious person. We don't have um, so much as a letter. I mean, we have a couple of dedications to works. The only piece of literary writing that survives in his own hand is actually from a play that was never produced, Sir Thomas More. Uh, we can talk about that at its proper point. Um, but we don't have a lot of evidence. What we have are his children, as they've been described, all these beautiful plays, uh, works of art that are so challenging and so instructive. So, uh, Professor Smith, you say make him your friend. How could you become a friend of someone who you can't know very well except by these plays. Well, I mean, I think in the, in the act of reading, you really are encountering a real live author. And 
he is appealing to your judgment. He is leading your attention. He's provoking questions. Uh, he's educating throughout. And I think that uh, word friendship is, is really right. I mean, what people want and what friends want for one another is the good. And I think that that's what the artist wants for the reader. Key first question. Key first yeah. question. Can we take his history seriously? I mean, names, dates, places, the sort of things that are rather loosely taught in school today. Do we get the reality of English history from Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean, you get his um, his choice of focus, which is going to be tremendously on, on the character of the leadership in the plays. Um, but, I mean, he, he makes edits, he makes cuts, he kind of telescopes. He does all sorts of things that people do when they tell stories like this. Um, but he just focuses on these moments of English history um, with his own kind of educational goals in mind. You know, the Duke of Marlborough is reported to have said that you can learn everything you need to know about English history from the place of Shakespeare. And oh. then Abraham, Abraham Lincoln was also um, a big admirer. That I knew from Dr. Arn. I think Churchill was as well. Uh, Dr. Arn has told recently the story of Churchill repeating the lines of a play, which would be a bit unnerving if he was in the front row. But uh, <laughs> I'll say. So, so uh, Larry, 30 seconds to the, the break, uh, Dr. Arn. Why is he indispensable for citizens? Well, these history plays, for example, they, they cover 500 years and huge events. And, and what he does is he takes snapshots and interpret, interprets them, and you can see the spirit and cause of what's going on and the reaction of the people. And so you learn about all that. You learn about human character. You learn about politics. And this story is the story of the formation of England as we know it today. And thus, I would add, the story of America as we know it today. Because I tell my law students, if you're going to know America, you've got to know England. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Sign up for Imprimus. Uh, get your son or daughter an application. Or if you are thinking about going to college, go there and get an application. Come right back. We go along in the Hillsdale Dialogue. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway, but up in Michigan, well, actually Michigan and wherever we find Sabata Cave, is Dean Stephen Smith, professor of English at uh, Hillsdale College, president of the college, Dr. Larry Arn is with us as well. As we begin our deep dive into the history plays of Shakespeare, we've never done this before on the Hillsdale Dialogue. And he wrote the entire history of England, not the entire, but most of it in plays. But golly me, Stephen Smith, I've tried to get this right in my mind so many times, and I screw it up. The tautologies don't line up unless a professor tells us how to read them. How do we do this? <laughs> well, I think the most important thing to see first is what you just said, that he wrote a history of his own country in play forms across his whole working life. Um, he starts with King Lear, which is set in pre-Christian times. He then goes to Cymbeline and to Macbeth, and then from there to King John and the rest of the history plays. 
right up to Sir Thomas More and Henry VIII. So you, you get a meditation across the whole lifetime by a philosophical genius on his own country from pre-Christian times to Henry VIII. Uh, well, when, when you say pre-Christian times, is that myth, which my old Latin teacher, a wonderful man, used to say, myth is the story intended to be believed, but it's not necessarily true. What, what are those first three, and will we come back to them at the end? <laughs> Don't tempt me. They're my favorite place. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, this is Shakespeare meditating on, especially in Cymbeline, which is a play that is among the greatest of all his plays and, and the least well-known on the founding of, of the country. And it involves, um, it's set around the time of the nativity, and it involves the war between Rome and England. And so these plays are just, uh, those three in particular, King Lear, Cymbeline, and Macbeth, uh, among his very greatest plays. Dr. Orange, you have a, pre- you know, I'm a lawyer. I do like to have facts in, in order. I like you know, a great presentation and exposition of A follows is followed by B is followed by C. How do you how do you like to read them or think about them in that order in which they occurred with the mythology before or the mythology after? Well, the uh, so they're history plays, which is, you know, whoever thought of that? You know, I mean, they say in Plato's Symposium that there'll be a great, a great uh poet who can write comedy and tragedy as well. Shakespeare did that, but he wrote these history plays. And so I studied with Martin Gilbert, right? And you get something pounded into your head. And that is, these events happened in order. And although he didn't write them in, in the order in which the events occurred, one can read them in that order. And I like that. And I, I, I'm doing that more in preparation for these dialogues than I've ever done before. And they make a, they make fine sense. Uh, uh, Dean Smith, we are starting next week with King John because it's the first one we can nail down in history with a date. And then I hope I can tempt you into coming back for the three. What's the advantage of that and a disadvantage? And by the way, what would an, what would an American history set of plays look like? Well, I, I agree with Dr. Arn. When I first started out, I thought the only history plays worth reading were Richard II, Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, and then maybe Richard the Third as well. But I've discovered that reading them in order is incredibly illuminating. And these less lesser known plays, especially his earlier plays, are really pretty darn good. I hope everyone will find that to be the case. As far as America goes, um, I just think to myself sometimes when I talk to students, imagine if there were an American writer who wrote just knockout comedy and tragedy but also wrote a tetralogy on the American founding, a tetralogy being a four-part series, a tetralogy on the Civil War, and then a handful of other plays focused on key turning points in our nation's history. I mean, we'd say, wow, you know, this person must have some serious interest in his country, um, his culture, uh, form of government, um, virtue, political life. Hamilton again and again and again and again. Hamilton yeah. is, is really, I applaud it because it's made people know about Hamilton and about the Federalist Papers and about everything about him in a little tiny bit of tincture of Hamilton. There's nothing else like it, though, is there? Well, I, I asked the font of all good sense, my wife, Laura, what she thought about these history plays. 
And she said, that's like someone writing 14 or 15 Hamilton. <laughs> Talking about she, Shakespeare's plays. She yeah. is the font of all wisdom. Go Nowhere America, we continue on with the introduction to Shakespeare's history plays right after this. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. You're in the middle of a non-stop, action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Everything you need about the college, including the opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, their newsletter, their master classes, everything that you need. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. If you simply put Hillsdale Dialogues iTunes, they will appear magically in the order in which they appeared. Today I have Dean Stephen Smith, Professor of English at Hillsdale, and Professor Larry Arn, Dean Larry Arn, President Larry Arn, I should just call him El Jefe, uh, with us. And we're talking about the first of a series on the Shakespeare history plays. What? What's the overarching thing we're looking for, uh, Professor Smith, out of this deep dive? Well, I think that um, Shakespeare is meditating throughout these plays on um, need, on our real needs. And in particular, he lands strongly on the word virtue uh, and the need that a person has for virtue, that a leader has for virtue, and that that a country itself has. And he does this in all sorts of ways, um, but but mainly by examining you know, the character and ruling habits of, of the leaders. And that's going to mean kings and queens, but others as well. He really wants us to study and consider carefully um, these leading figures, um, their character, their virtue or lack of virtue, how they make decisions, why they do what they do, do they lead well or badly, um, is there hope for, for England or not? And he really wants us to, to chew on, on those questions. He, and deep down, I think he's interested in preparing the reader himself or herself, you know, for a life of virtue. And you can't make someone virtuous by reading, right? Um, but you can give them counsel. You can challenge their judgment or lead them to acts of judgment. And then whether or not they they live differently after the experience of a great play or a great book, that's that's kind of out of the artist's hands. That's in the hands of the reader and his or her freedom. You know, this sounds a little bit, I don't know, quaint to think of Abraham Lincoln, a young Lincoln, reading his Shakespeare, Dr. Arn. But he was America's greatest leader, and he had to, he had to plumb sorrow and joy and overcome and I imagine if he studied Shakespeare, though, and, and I, I ascribe to him virtue. Do you think this has something to do with his abilities? Mm. Well, to love to read Shakespeare uh, by the light of an open fire in his house, that's a love. And he, uh, he, so he, something seized him about it. And that something you can read in, for example, what's probably his greatest speech, uh, the second inaugural address, which is a beautiful, tragic poem. And that means that he could see what Shakespeare was saying. And not just in the history plays, but 
you know, he, he, he liked Macbeth best of all, which also Churchill did. Uh, but they're, they're, and, and Macbeth is great for a statesman because Macbeth is a deeply moral play. It's driven by the fact that Lady Macbeth discards her sense of justice out of ambition. And, that, and, and, and Macbeth himself is never fully able to do that. And he's tortured by the terrible things he does. And both of them are broken by that experience. And it's a claim that nature itself, in Macbeth there are scenes in many places in Shakespeare where nature itself rebels against a wrongful act. And, you know, horses do odd things, and the sky does odd things. And so Shakespeare is building a... Uh, you know, in, in the in the crucifixion story, you know when the when the uh, when the tablature on the temple splits, and there are terrible storms and thunders, right? And well, an that's, eclipse. Yeah, an that's eclipse. Uh, that's uh, that's nature rebelling against unnatural acts. Well, let me ask you that: Do you do you imagine when when Lincoln wrote that second inaugural, and I think the most amazing line in American history, and the war came, is, is in, it is poetry. It's just an amazing bit of writing. Um, is that the bard talking to him in his head uh, around the facts of misery that surround him? Misery well, and triumph. Well, I, I would hesitate to say of either Lincoln or the bard that anything about them was der- derivative. They were in a conversation across time. And, he, he, you know, Lincoln, I mean, uh, my favorite line in that speech is, is about the justice of the war, because to make sense of a tragedy, you have to understand its place in the moral order. And so what he says is, if every drop of blood drawn by the lash through 200 years of the bondsman's unrequited toil must now be repaid by another drawn by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. You see, that's a judgment, right? And that's Shakespearean, of course. It is, and it's that whenever I go up to the monument and I read that, that, that line too. Uh, Stephen Smith, when you find a, a group of students about to set out on Shakespeare, and I'm sure a bunch of people listening to us right now are saying, I wish I had done this when I was young. Do you recognize those who have an ear and a heart for Shakespeare, and is it too late for people who did not get into Shakespeare 101 when they were in college? No, it most certainly isn't. In fact, uh, one of the joys of my uh, work at Hillsdale has been teaching Shakespeare to everyone from aspiring high school students to our college students to graduate students to citizens across the country and then to retired folks as well who come oftentimes in the summer for classes, I've been astonished by how much each group gains from him and how differently uh, they read. I mean, my, my folks in the summertime have such a stronger sense of time, um, conscience, um, nature, character, and my younger people are often dazzled by the poetry of Shakespeare, um, but also intrigued by his emphasis on, on that big question, how do you lead your life well? How do you equip yourself um, to lead a great human life? They respond to that. 
So definitely not too late. In fact, um, one thing that's really true, and I say it often to students, uh, don't ever feel bad that you haven't read something. Uh, in fact, you should be excited um, because I wish I could go back and reread some of these plays for the first time. I mean, the thrill of, of Macbeth in high school, I never read anything like it. And it moved me so powerfully, and it, and it started to instruct me even in, in that, that early, early life. Uh, ne- never, uh, never hesitate uh, to, to begin learning again. Um, are, people, begin- are people surprised by their capacity to learn Shakespeare or to profit or to get a virtue signal from him? And I mean that in the positive way, not in the politically correct way, but to actually learn more as they are older? Oh, I, I've in, in some of our summer events, I've had folks uh, start off the week um, telling me how opposed they, you know, I, I've never liked Shakespeare. I've never wanted to read him. I've had students say the same thing for that matter. And it is astonishing how he wins them over by the end of the week. It takes a little bit of work, as it always does. Um, and you have to become comfortable with his language, of course. Um, but once you warm up to him, you'll find just what his friends found during his lifetime. No one knows how to gain the attention of a reader or an audience, sustain the attention of a reader audience, and educate it like William Shakespeare. He's in what about the language? The language is not our language. It's not conversational English. How long does it take to become familiar with it? Well, honestly, in a, like an upper-level class, like if I'm doing a class, it's not uncommon for three, three or four weeks um, for people that all of a sudden feel like they've made some transition with him. He's harder than people like to admit. Um, he is a, he's a philosophical thinker of the first order. He's a demanding writer. He's a challenging writer to your wit and your judgment. He requires work. Uh, it's not just all, you know, the mellifluous bard, ha, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but once you, once you get used to him um, and you tune in, it just gets greater and greater and greater. And then you'll find one of the great pleasures of life, seeing multiple performances, rereading. His friend said way back when in the first folio, read him again and again. And then if you don't like him, you're in some manifest danger. Dr. Art, would uh, Harry Jaffa slow down for you folks, you, you poor beginners, or would he just press on? Mm. It was uh, painstaking. I think I said last time that uh, Professor Jaffa sort of taught by the sentence. And so if you read Aristotle with him, or anything, but it's Aristotle and Shakespeare were the ones where this was most vivid. Uh, like in Aristotle's Ethics, we never got out of book one, and we skipped the bits about the argument of Plato because we didn't have time for them. And that means in a graduate course uh, where you had to know some Greek to take the course, we never got out of book one. <laughs> and, and yet it was all there, he would say. Well, in Shakespeare, he would, he, he would play them, you know, their plays. And so he'd find a recording. Back then it was an LP record. And he'd, and, and, and he'd play bits of it, and he'd stop. You could stop. We didn't very often. Most of you could hold up your hand, and he'd stop. But we'd wait for him to stop, because when he stopped, he had something great to say. And that meant you worked your way through them, you know, 
you know, the plays are three hours long, round round numbers. We spend ten hours on one of them. Oh well, we mean to tempt here on the Hilltail Dialogue, not to teach in any any claim to extraordinary precision. We mean to tempt. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Professor Stephen Smith, President Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. You're tuned into the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week with Dr. Larry Arden, president of Hillsdale College, and Dean Stephen Smith, professor of English at Hillsdale College. This week and many weeks into the future, we are doing the history plays of Shakespeare. Next week, King John. This week, we're finishing up with the introduction. And Dean Smith, you said he is the teacher of virtue and the good life. What other lessons are we going to look for besides how to live well and how to live well over the course of a life? What other questions are you going to answer and ask before answering them? You know, there are a lot of, a lot of good questions that come out of these history plays. Um, maybe a fundamental one. Uh, what is the best form of government? <laughs> I mean, he obviously lived in a monarchy, but wow. Um, we're, we're going to have to ask ourselves what we think about monarchy by the end of this. So what's the best form of government? The big question. What's the best way for a leader to live and govern, of course? Um, but what's the real character of a country? What are its aspirations? What are the kind of problems it faces in particular? What are its real needs? And then maybe uh, just to close on the question, um, what does a country need to do to foster liberty and avoid tyranny? That's a big question. And then what does a country need to secure stable civil order and avoid civil war? I mean, you know, Dr. Arn, when I teach con law, I begin with the Stuarts, because unless you do the, the revolution against the Stuarts and then the glorious revolution, you're not ready for the American Revolution. That's just that's how deeply English the American experience is. And so I think studying Shakespeare is useful to that. Agree or disagree? Yeah, well. You can see there's no perfect form of government. Uh, the most perfect form of government is monarchy of the wise. But the difficulty with that is wise men don't always serve women, don't always have wives' children. And so lots of this, you know, there are good kings and bad kings in these Shakespeare plays. But there, there are several families who would love to be the king and have their children be the king. And they kill each other. I mean, the whole houses of York and Lancashire, all the male heirs were killed. And those lines descend now through the females. And, 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 and then when you get a good one, what you know is they won't last too long. They will, I, just, I just read Charles Fox warning George III that he was imposed on the English because the last group had to be killed off. It was was quite a reminder. So what do we go to next? King John, set it up for us so that they'll come back next week, uh, Dean Smith. What about King John and and thereafter Richard II? Well, I mean, just to affirm what Dr. Arndt said, get yourself ready for some serious bloodshed and mayhem. (laughs) Uh, These plays are extraordinary uh, on that front. Um, But to people who are are sincerely interested in listening out there, um, whatever you do, 
don't worry about all the names and the dates. I was teasing uh, my students about this. Like, oh, the history plays. There's so many. There's this house and that house and this duke and that duke and this rival claim to the throne and that one. And I'll say, you all can keep track of eight seasons of television, thousands of plot lines, uh, or, or you can you can know every absolutely everything about Tolkien, for example. You can you can definitely handle Shakespeare's history plays. It's, it's actually considerably uh, clearer than that. So whatever you do, don't worry about all the names and dates. They will you'll warm right up to it. Um, but then begin to really think about those leading figures. Our first two kings are deeply problematic figures: King John and King Richard. And Shakespeare is meditating again on the character of the leader and also the form of, of government. But um, and I'd share an anecdote too. I just taught um, the second tetralogy, so Richard II and the rest of those plays, to our graduate students out in on the Washington campus. And it was an amazing experience because these are folks who are working in different offices there in D.C., different uh, lines of work, but are studying for an M.A. in government. And out of the class, I think one of them had some pretty serious experience with these plays before. The rest did not. And so it was really great to see people coming to these plays relatively cold, not without, without a lot of familiarity, and then growing in interest and attention, and at the end thinking, golly, I've just met a cast of characters I can truly relate to and whose struggles in the political world I really can can understand and I share them. You know, we we live in a city full of large personalities and ambitious men and women. And And I'll leave the last minute to you, Dr. Arndt. It's not surprising to me that people who love politics love these plays because it's what surrounds us inside the Beltway. Well, the value of it to them, by the way, is to step out of that, to step out. You know, Washington is a policy world. Uh, It's trying to administer in detail the affairs of 360 million people, and that makes it concentrate on the petty. And so you need something to help you see the large and the grand and the ultimate. And there's nothing better than these plays. The large, the large, the grand, and the ultimate. Beginning again next week with King John, the Ildale Dialogue. We'll be back with Dean Stephen Smith, President Larry Arn. You all have a great weekend out there. Thank you, Adam and Ben. Thank you, General Lissimo. All things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Talk to you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.